Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. Countries that are rising up in the international order, they are under no illusion that they are lacking in power. You know, even India and China know that the U.S. is far more powerful than they are. But what they seek is symbolic equality, right? They seek a certain recognition that they have a claim to be important actors in the eyes of, of the great powers like the United States. If these countries are to show international leadership, if they do want to actually become leaders in the international order, it would really be in their interest, both from material and the status point of view, to take charge and, and bring Putin to the negotiating table and say, we can, we can forge a consensus the way the West cannot. Whoever controls the system, though, has the greatest freedom to be hypocritical. What the rising powers resent, really, China and India resent, is that they don't get to be hypocritical and, and escape censure or, or pay costs, uh, pay fewer costs than, than, say, the U.S. does. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Triumph Connects. Why do we sometimes see individuals support political parties or political opinions that are clearly directly in conflict with their own material self-interests? Over the last 20 to 30 years, it's become clearly the case that explanations of individuals' political affiliations, which do not take into account non-material elements, are really fatally flawed. Without taking into account how support for individuals or parties are affected by and shaped by people's identities, felt exclusion or inclusion into the system based on those identities, how their identities are legitimized or not, how they're recognized or not in any given system. Without taking those things into account, we really cannot adequately explain or predict individuals' behavior in their political attitudes or support for political parties. As I said, this is really quite clear now, and almost all models of individual political behavior take into account these factors. But when it comes to trying to explain how states will behave in the international system, our theories mostly ignore these feelings. Traditionally, scholars have focused on how particular actions will affect the material interest of a country, or at least their elites, and in that context, if and when a country will undermine, challenge, ignore, or support a current international order is simply a matter of exploring the costs and benefits the country perceives will flow from any specific action, whether it's support or opposition. Using that approach, many scholars and commentators now believe that conflict between the West or the global North, or however you want to say it, and China, an ascending power, is kind of in some ways inevitable. China, or any ascending power really in this model, will increasingly see it in their material interest to exert their increasing power in a way that challenges an international political order which it didn't have any hand in creating and that it sees as being purposely designed to entrench the powers of and enrich the founders of that order. My guest for this episode is Dr. Rohan Mukherjee. He thinks that this type of analysis that I just described misses a key factor in determining states' behavior, and that's the perceived recognition increases in and decreases in a kind of state's status. Like in domestic politics, explanations which ignore these kind of elements of identity, of feelings of injustice or justice based on that identity, these these explanations that fail to take into his account will fail, fail in their predictions as well. In his excellent new book entitled Ascending Order, Rising Powers and Politics of Status in International Institutions, Rohan argues that whether rising powers cooperate with or, or challenge or try to reform an international order will depend on the extent to which its core institutions facilitate a kind of symbolic equality with what he calls the Great Power Club, the existing members of the Great Power Club. Rohan is an assistant professor in the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Prior to joining the LSE, he was an assistant professor of political science at the Yale NUS College in Singapore. 
He received his PhD from the Department of Politics at Princeton University. He holds an MPA in International Development from Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs and has a BA in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics from the University of Oxford. He is also a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the MIT Security Studies Program and a non-resident visiting fellow at the United Nations University in Tokyo. Ron is a really thoughtful and creative scholar, and it was my great pleasure to explore his ideas in this conversation and how they apply to China and India, the war in Ukraine, expected areas of conflicts and support for different parts of the international order from ascending powers like China and India, etc. I mean, I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And so without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Rohan Mukherjee. Rohan Mukherjee, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Look, I thought it might be interesting before we start talking about uh, your really interesting book uh, on this idea of international status theory. I just want to help our readers a little bit to put it into the context of kind of why this is an interesting question and where it kind of fits into the theoretical framework that most people in international relations kind of use. So excuse me a little bit. I'm, I I will get to a question soon at the end. I ask for patience just because we're we're just trying to set this up for people. So in in a, a very simplified way of thinking about it, we, we can say that we're living in times of a lot of change in the international order. So we've have a rise of, uh, once again, of kind of great power rivalry. And there's all kinds of states that are challenging this kind of international rule-based order that is continuing to dominate both popular and academic thought now in the area. So with the rise of China, for example, people are really interested in how is this how how will China be integrated or how will it undermine the international rule-based system? So the basic story, which commonly told, is that this is a really dangerous time uh, in the international system, that because as states ascend to great power status, they challenge the existing order, which they see as favoring their kind of old rivals or the people who are part of the club already. And that these rivals will, are really reluctant to change any system systematic way or change anything in a systematic way because it undermines their own power and the advantages in the system that they created. And so conflict, including armed conflict and chances of war, increase. And so when what you have is this idea when you have a rising ascending power, um, where it's a kind of dangerous transition time. Is that is that sound about right as a, as a summary so far? Yes, absolutely. Okay, and so. One other major theory kind of in this international order area is that some, this is kind of a brighter, more optimistic uh, kind of view that great powers, the existing great powers will in this situation kind of agree to constrain their own behavior under these rules favorable to themselves, but they do this in exchange for the active support and cooperation of these lesser powers or maybe ascending powers. And the lessing power, lesser powers agree to this because even though they recognize that they, they're operating under kind of a rigged system, they enjoy all of the benefits of Pete's the, and the constrained great powers, potential excesses. And so they can kind of win at somebody else's game in a way. And so that's, that's, that's where we maybe would escape kind of conflict. But your book it addresses a couple questions that kind of fall out of those kind of dominant frameworks. And I think these questions are so interesting. So one is, why might a rising power challenge the very international order that enabled its, its rise? Okay, And you write that, after all, by definition, it's doing better than the established powers under the rules and institutional arrangements. So one instantly kind of thinks of China in this situation. Why on earth would China try to undermine the international rule-based system if, in fact, it's the source of their wealth and, and, and rising power? And then another question you ask is, uh, again, it's kind of the other side of the coin. Why might a rising power accept even a super disadvantageous international order, even when they're not maybe doing so well, and even when it's less costly to challenge it or completely disregard it? So these are kind of these kind of questions in, in a sense where theories are tested because it, if the theory can't explain those behaviors, then something is kind of missing. 
And as I understand it, to answer the questions, you make this claim in the book that for me in some ways is really quite radical and that state behavior, particularly ascending powers, are willing to make all kinds of sacrifices to their material interest, including economic, military, political, whatever, if they're accorded some sort of respect and legitimacy by the existing players in the international order. And it's this status, this, this respect, this inclusion that they're really after. And if they don't get it, then bad things can happen or or not bad things. That's a that's a value statement. But they can do things that will act in ways that are independent of their material gains and hopes as long as this kind of status is fulfilled. Do I, do I have that right? Yes. No, I think that's right. OK, so tell me, what is it about the state? What, what is it about the status that they that they crave? I mean, after all, states are kind of constructs, right? They're social constructs. A state doesn't feel disrespected. I mean, individuals within the state do. So what what is it what is it exactly is this status that you're talking about? I think the way you framed it is exactly, you know, how I would also frame it in a way. And uh, and I guess it's sort of the part of what I'm assuming here or part of what I'm arguing is that states care about state status, of course, uh, but they also care about other things, right? So they do care about the material, the economic, the, the political, and all of those things. But there are times um, in, in their existence in the international order when they are willing to sacrifice those other things uh, for the sake of recognition, for the sake of inclusion, right? Uh, and be that to sort of stay within a club that they're already a part of, or to join a club, uh, or to stave off a kind of threat to their position within, you know, within the order and so on. So what is that status? How do we think about that the states are obviously not people, right? There's, that's a definitely uh, a very valuable uh, way of thinking about it. Um, I sort of think about it as a, a social psychologist might. So I read, I, you know, I read a lot of that literature and it's sort of, I think of states as big groups, aggregations of multiple groups, right? And when you think about groups, uh, there is a sense in which as an individual, your identity is partly your own, but it's partly also the identity given by your group, right? You know, I, I could think of myself as being part of a nation, uh, a tribe, uh, an ethnicity, a religion and gender and so on, right? So, sure. so in some sense, when uh, these leaders, national leaders are negotiating with each other uh, on the international stage, the, the prominent identity of theirs is in a sense their national identity, right? And so that, that and, and ultimately they want recognition for their group's status within a society of groups, as it were, which is the international system, right? And so if you conceive of the international order as a kind of societal place, like something resembling domestic society, you can start to see the analogies between how states uh, seek that status for their own societies uh, relative to other societies, right? So in a sense, we are all groups of groups in some sense. And so, so it's possible to sort of think about and apply a lot of the research that comes out of social psychology, particularly group psychology, uh, to how states interact in the international order. Oh, so it's fascinating. So it's kind of like identity politics, but at at the at, at an international order, right? So so you the the idea is that, um, uh, well, I guess domestic political theory has fallen under the same problem. In in that, uh, let me let me try to extend the analogy a little bit. Um, theories that try to explain people's political behavior within and within a polity that don't take into account the strong kind of feelings of identity and um, respect or lack thereof, and only look at the material benefits, m miss a big part of the picture. And 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 so, for example, if we look at the rise of, say, Donald Trump, so if we say, wh why would these people support someone who their policies are against the material interest of the person that they're supporting, let's say? And of course, the answer is it has something other than to do with just the material interest. It has to do with identity. It has to do with respect. As I understand it, you're kind of taking that that framework of this kind of we need to incorporate these other things in and placing it at the international order. Would that is that the is that what when you say you're focusing on social psychology is that do I have that part right? Yes. No. Exactly. So I mean, why is it that we we have all these debates and political fights over the naming of statues, uh, the the conventions that are used to sort of think about marriage, like marriage equality and all these things. When, you know, civil unions could perhaps do the same job. Why is it that certain communities seek man marriage equality? It's because it signifies a certain recognition 
of a claim to equality, right? So ultimately in the book, I talk about status as symbolic equality. It's not just, you know, these countries that are rising up in the international order, they are under no illusion that they are lacking in power, right? I mean, you know, even India and China know that the US is far more powerful than they are. Um, but what they seek is symbolic equality, right? They seek a certain recognition that they have a claim to be important actors in the eyes of, of the great powers like the United States. So just as, you know, in domestic society, we often have conflicts over uh, symbolic things. I think in the international order, you also have, this, have similar conflicts uh, over, over the respect and recognition that, that particularly lower ranked states are, are given or not given. And again, it, it, it's always a tension here because let me let me try to explain. It's so easy. Back in the day, I started I studied international relations when I was in graduate school, and it's I I I had to continually fight against this idea of thinking about states as kind of unitary actors, right? That they somehow have personalities, that they somehow have have preferences over outcomes, and again, as you say, it's a collection of groups within in that polity. And so when we start to say, you know, they uh, certain lower power states crave that identity through their identity, crave the respect for being for, for, for in, in the status, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to push a little bit harder back a little bit because I want to understand it. Who exactly is it the leaders themselves that want to be respected as part of that group? Is it the domestic pressures within the polity? that constrains their behavior. So they say, the leader might say, well, I want to do this, but if I do this, my people will feel disrespected and I can't do that politically for some reason. Exactly what is the, how do we tie it back to entities that can feel disrespect? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I think the the, the first cut answer is yes, of course it's leaders. I mean, the, the cases that I look at in the book are largely in the realm of security, you know, it's a nuclear, weapons and naval warships and all of this stuff, where it's obviously a small group of individuals that are making the decision, but they are in a sense, uh, they acting, they're acting on behalf of their societies, of their, of their nations. And so they feel that disrespect or respect or, or recognition, et cetera, as if it were for their entire country, right? Now, uh, that's not to say that the ordinary person on the street doesn't feel the same way. They do. There are lots of surveys to show that, you know, uh, citizens in various countries sort of look at how well, you know, or they consider how much respect their country is getting as a valuable thing. Uh, most recently in a country that I study in India after Narendra Modi became prime minister, uh, one of the things that a lot of public opinion surveys showed in India was that he was ranked the highest for his performance on foreign policy. And what was he really doing? He was putting India on the world stage. He was showing up, he was, you know, meeting with world leaders, he was making India something, a, a country to be reckoned with. And people value that, right? Now, whether there's a link in the policymaking process between public opinion and what leaders do, that's a much more unclear transmission belt, as it were, right? So uh, it's difficult to sort of get into that, especially in a historical context, at least in the in the empirical cases that I look at in the book, uh, there's not much consideration given to public opinion, except in actually the other direction, which is to say that you know, often uh, public opinion will push for something, say, we must increase, you know, we must have nuclear weapons, people believe that, but a country will say, no, it actually suits our status more to, to not have nuclear weapons, mm. right? to say that we support the international orders. Ultimately, the decision-making is still happening at the top, um, and the effects of recognition and, 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 and misrecognition um, take place at that level. Yeah, but there must be clear. I mean, I agree that that makes sense. Thank you. But it must be it must be the case as well that it can go on the negative side. There must be this tie because if a if a if a leader behaves in ways that go against what their polity think of as well, like kind of the opposite of Modi. So if Modi would do something that would take away from the dignity of India, then there must be a, a political cost to pay for that, right? And so, uh, you know, in the same way, I remember this case. It was it was a, a, a made a big deal of when uh, Obama was in Saudi Arabia, I think. And what did he do? I think he did he bow or something to the king or, or something that was seen as incongruent with uh, the idea of America as the 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 hyperpower. And this and and there was a political cost to be paid. So it must be going ghost both ways, right? With the ties with domestic uh, domestic political opinion. Yeah, no, I do think that that's the case. The question, uh, I guess the bigger question or the more important question is how much does that opinion actually affect uh, 
you know, politics or, or political decision making? Like, would Obama, keeping that in mind, not have done it? Or did he just, you know, was he, did he have a, a slip up? Like, it's unclear to me that yeah. leaders necessarily think about it uh, that clearly, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I agree. I mean, I think there are certainly, uh, a, 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 yeah, you could call them political costs or, or public opinion costs when you are seen as compromising national dignity. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's, let's, here, uh... Let, let's do this. You you start the book with a really interesting uh, example of the non-proliferation uh, treaty in the in the '90s and and China's reaction to it and and India as well. So maybe just to make this kind of real to us, let's go through that example if it's okay with you. Can, can you give us a summary of how how China's first of all position changed? What was the situation and how you explain with the this international status theory how you explain that change in their in their behavior? Yeah, sure. So the treaty in question is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which in the end never got enacted because the, the United States didn't ratify it and therefore China didn't have to either. Uh, but essentially, the story sort of starts after the end of the Cold War in about 93. And there's this increasing sort of uh, call around the world for uh, a treaty to ban nuclear tests once and for all. Right. And so uh, at that point, uh, uh, the United States, Russia um, and, and Britain had already announced moratoriums on testing. France and China were the only ones remaining among the official nuclear powers, the P5. Um, and so when the negotiations began towards this treaty, it seemed that China was going to be the biggest sort of blocking force. It was going to be a spoiler. Uh, they, were, they were very worried that because they were a young power, like they were still developing their nuclear capabilities, whereas the US and Britain in particular were much further ahead in developing uh, their nuclear uh, technology, especially with regard to delivering nuclear weapons uh, in terms of actually attacking other countries. Uh, there was a real security risk to agreeing to the end of testing because testing would have definitely helped China's program to develop further and faster, whereas the, you know, the US and Britain didn't really need that anymore, right? So, so there, was a, there was this reason that China had to sort of uh, to block the CTVT. But in fact, what we see, like very surprisingly, in the middle of the negotiations, China decides to change its position and makes a number of concessions uh, that enable the CTVT to go through. Uh, and, and that's very hard to explain from a purely materialistic point of view, right? They actually took a big security risk. And when you look at sort of read the, 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 the research that comes out of that period and the, the people have worked on, it, it seems that it shows that um, the main debate within China was about being a member of the international community, being a member of the P5, acting like a great power, right? Doing the, doing the responsible thing to uphold the international order. Uh, and so that kind of drove China's decision-making far more than the security considerations. And so they were willing to make that compromise because they were already part of the, the elite group of nuclear weapon countries. And it, it, it also helped that France stopped uh, testing in the middle of the negotiations, right? France sort of announces a moratorium, which leaves China isolated. And that feeling of isolation is something that a lot of countries seek to avoid. And I, I see that in other cases as well. You don't want to be the one held responsible for the order not working, right, in a sense. Right. And so, so ultimately, it's a desire for inclusion or to maintain inclusion in this case that creates cooperation. Okay, so so fascinating. Thank you. That that really helps. I, I, and, and let me try to pick apart a little bit because I, I, I want to really get my head around exactly what you're saying that's different from other th than other theories. So you have China that starts and they're opposed to the theory, right? They, they, they say, we aren't going to do this it's for obvious reasons. It, it, it's against our military interests. Um, you guys have all tested, you're ready. You have this kind of a developed first strike capability and, and it's not going to be good for us. So that's their position to start with. Throughout the negotiation, they change. Okay, so there's a change in their in their uh, and they suddenly make these big concessions and support the treaty. So, if we take one one potential explanation, if I understand the theory that you're putting forward, is what the reason they changed is it became more and more costly to their status if they were to stay out because they would not they would have been seen to be uniquely opposed to the and and hurting this kind of international order they wanted to to be seen as a good citizen uh with the hope and the consequence of them being uh uh given more respect and more status so did something happen to change the 
the perceived status. So if that was the case, why did they start being opposed to it and why did they change? What changed their position? Because was it some action on the part of the existing powers that gave China the the kind of feeling that they were be re, being respected? Because without, you know, it's kind of like an independent dependent variable, right? So what what changed on if you're if you're right, then something should have changed on the status side that would have changed the behavior. And the reason I'm pushing on this is we're going to get to this. If you're right, then, and we want to avoid conflict, we will see that we need to include, give people that feeling of status, and that will be less likely to lead to conflict. So in this case, is there something that happened that led to China's change that would be related to their status? I guess that's the question. Sure, yeah. So I think... In this case, it was less that China had to be given status as to uh, rather than sort of being reminded of the status that it already had in a sense within the institution. And because, you know, I talk in the book about how the openness of an institution makes a difference, right? How accessible mm -hmm. is it to a rising power for it to sort of rise up in the future to become a leader within the institution? And because of China's sort of official recognition by the NPT, which, you know, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which goes back to the to the 70s, as a, as a member of the P5, China already had that inclusion, right? And so in a sense, the debate within China was, uh, was should, you know, does how much does that, does that inclusion matter relative to our security interests? And on the outside in the negotiations, of course, there was a lot of diplomacy uh, around this, you know, the, the US and Britain uh, were trying to convince, and France were trying to convince China to sort of, you know, not hold up the treaty. There was a lot of uh, non-governmental, there's a, there's, a, there's a major sort of, anti-nuclear international sort of lobby, right? Like, or, 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 sure. or a movement, a social movement in various countries, uh, international NGOs that focus on disarmament and all of that. So there's a lot of pressure on China to quote unquote, do the right thing. And I think that led them to realize that, you know, in a sense, this is worth more than the the risks that they would be taking by, uh, uh, by agreeing to the, the security risks that they would take by agreeing to the treaty. So there was this sense in which it was, you know, you are already in the club in this particular instance. Okay. Uh, you should act like a, a responsible member. Okay. So I'm just going to, I mean, there's a disentanglement problem here that's really hard, I think. And and let me try to explain what I mean in this particular case, just using it as a case example. Let's say that you have within China a debate and you, and you mentioned the debate internally within China. So some people are saying, look, it's in our material interest to reject this because we'll be able to develop our defensive position, nuclear defensive position much more strongly and it will be in our best interest and it's too costly on the military front for us to do this. And then you have another, again, this is domestic argument, you have another domestic player that says, wait, the benefits of us playing along with this in economic terms, in uh, 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 other relational terms. Again, I'm trying to distinctly not talk about status for a second, right? So you could say, we will do better off. Our interests are better served by by joining our economic interests, political interests, et cetera. In that sense, it's just a debate about what's the best policy to pursue our material interest. It isn't about status, or in that using my kind of stylized example, where what's the extra that we get from thinking about status? Yeah, so I think the question to ask here is sort of what is the material cost in terms of economic or military uh, of not signing the treaty, right? And it wasn't really clear that there would have been major consequences. I mean, the, the Cold War had just ended and there was there was no major geopolitical competition yet unfolding in the region. Uh, this was, you know, we're talking about early nineties. Uh, it's not that the it's not as if the international community would have necessarily sanctioned China for not signing the CTBT. There were many other countries that also had reservations about it being an unequal treaty. So I think there was not much to lose on the economic front as such. Um, and so really what the only thing that you had to lose was the sense of responsibility recognition and so on they could have walked away from the treaty and it wouldn't have gone through and 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 they wouldn't they would have continued to sort of develop their program right so again there's a sense in which you pay uh, i guess not a material cost but a psychological cost of being you know feeling that you didn't fulfill your obligation as a member of that club um, yeah. and 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 you see the contrast in a sense in another case which is india at the same time 
which is not a member of the club and does, doesn't have much to lose. And so they actually agree with China that this is an unequal treaty. It gives the great powers a major advantage. And they push ahead to torpedo the CTBT, right? They don't like it. And, and they actually walk away from it, refusing to sign it. It all doesn't matter in the end because the U.S. doesn't ratify it anyway. Uh, but had that gone through, India would have again been a sort of objector to the treaty, whereas China would have been a signatory. And was it was it predictable at the time? Did China know at the time that India would torpedo it anyway, and that it was unlikely to get through the U.S. Senate, or, or and and that again would give them the freedom, so they could get all of the benefits of saying, "Look, we're a responsible citizen of the global uh, community," knowing that they never have to pay the cost. Yeah, I mean, the evidence suggests that that wasn't the case because you know it, it there was no way of sort of knowing ahead of time what, how necessarily the Senate would vote, or in the U.S. case. Um, or how Bill Clinton's political fortunes would change, uh, him being the president at the time. Um, but also in the India case, India's India's objections and spoiling behavior came much later uh, after, uh, okay. in fact, it was India that sort of changed its position once it saw that even China was on board, right? India felt even more isolated in some sense and, uh, and felt like it was losing from the treaty. Yeah, so I think the timing doesn't work out for, for that to be the case. I want to see, again, this tie back to who, the the kind of potential domestic political costs and who's feeling this disrespect towards their group or the the or 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 respect or or feeling of status that comes from recognition of the group or rightful recognition. So, to what extent does the need? And we talked a little bit about it before. The status is driven from internal nationalistic factions within the rising power, and it doesn't even have to be a domestic power. Uh, you know, a, a democratic power. So uh, one of the things I've noticed from visiting China over the last 20 years or so is there there has been a uh, at least for me and this is this is kind of a, a casual non non kind of serious study but uh, just observationally there's been a rise of nationalist feeling in China for that China needs to be respected that China needs to be to, that it's a great power it has a sphere of influence and we're not ta- I'm not talking about kind of in the halls of Peking University or, you know or Tsinghua or something like this I'm talking about kind of on the street this kind of idea there's this push from nationalistic factions within rising powers is that the kind of thing that the leaders are looking at to get the status that their group desires. As you said, in India, there's this kind of great, in some ways, positive feeling uh, towards towards a leader because he was able to create this idea of India's on the global stage. And that and that and that domestic payoff must be large. I mean, does does it make sense to you? Is that part of your theory or is that kind of outside of what you're what you're pr- primarily interested in? No, it's a great question. I mean, I, I don't explicitly focus on domestic factors in the theory. I very much look at the diplomatic level of sort of where great powers and rising powers are negotiating. But at the same time, there is a lot of other good work that looks at domestic politics and how that drives a feeling um, uh, uh, or a desire for status. And often that is linked to nationalism at the domestic level. But the the the, the challenge with that kind of thinking or that kind of uh, framework is that nationalism in our modern world is a fairly constant phenomenon, right? It, it exists in all countries across all contexts, uh, roughly all, all, all the time. I, I, it's difficult to explain variation in state policies based on something that is constant, right? So what changes about nationalism? So you're saying over time, China has become more nationalistic and therefore it might crave status more. One could also tell a story of China's sort of uh, seeking more status, being denied it, and therefore becoming more nationalistic as a result, right? So it's it's difficult to disentangle this this idea, yeah. right? And, and, you know, there's a lot of, as you said, there's a disentanglement problem of a different kind here. Um, and there's also this sense of, you know, uh, you, when you read works about India and China now, it sort of says, oh, our time has come, right? right. As if, you know, we were, they were waiting in the wings, they were being denied something, and now it's their time to take it because they can, because they are more powerful. So it, nationalism is certainly a factor. The question is, of course, is it also shaped by external uh, policy interactions, diplomatic interactions, and so on? Hmm. And And it's certainly the case if we go back to social psychology literature, a sure way to create very strong identity is to be somehow um, a disadvantaged because of that single identity, right? So you you have a very a very uh, as you said, and it's a great point that the nationalism in China might be a reaction to feelings of the injustice in the current system, 
right? And that you only, and, and that that identity, that part of the identity, this Chinese nationalism, other than let's say an industry national, or uh, you know, kind of industry identity or a city identity or something like that, the national identity might be created and highlighted because of obvious uh, kind of un injustices, perceived injustices in the international system. Is that, is that sound about right? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. And in this case, there's also, you know, one has to overlay the the West, non-West distinction, right? Mm. I mean, there's also this idea of the history of, of colonialism and, and, and India and China being sure. Asian powers. Uh, when you talk, you know, this whole narrative of the century of humiliation, which has really been done to death at this point and used and misused in all kinds of ways, but it speaks at the core of it, there's a kernel of something real there, which is that, you know, China feels that and Chinese leaders, when I say China, it's important to think about the CCP because in an authoritarian system, it's unclear to me how much public opinion really filters up into decision making and how much is sort of also reverse in a reverse sense manufactured by the, by the political leaders, right? Yes. Through the control of information and all of yeah. that. So yeah. let's say when I say China, let's talk about leaders. There is a sense in which China is writing historical wrongs, right? And remarkably, in a democratic country like India, you see similar sentiment. When the Indian foreign minister speaks, he talks about uh, India not being given recognition for its role in the Second World War, where millions of Indian troops fought, many of them died. Um, and, and he says, now it's time to, to right historical wrongs and to, in a sense, give India its due through what he calls reformed multilateralism, right? Yeah. So again, there is also that aspect of uh, the West and the non-West and the inclusion and exclusion of, of, of certain countries based on that. Difference. And it can have, it can have all kinds of interesting consequences. So, I mean, just as a speculation, we now see in some ways a surprise, I think at least at the beginning, a feeling of surprise by many in the kind of global North, let's say of uh, the, the lack of, uh, negative response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and and um, I think to many people it was kind of a surprise. Uh, again, to many people in the so-called global north or, or the old-fashioned West or whatever you want to call it, that there was this idea of well, it's such a clear story of a good guy and a bad guy. How could anybody possibly see it in any different way? And this might be a reaction if if you're right it might be a reaction well look the system is so rigged it's so unfair you've been treating us so badly for so long why should we buy into your moral judgment about what's good and bad here is do you think does that make sense is that a, a logical extension of what you're saying yeah no in fact i've written about this in, in, in other forms like uh, as an extension of the book trying to think about the ukraine war through the lens of the of the book and its theory and all of that and i think you're absolutely right uh, if you don't feel ownership uh, uh, over a certain social system, let's call it an international order, um, you have no uh, incentive or no feeling about defending it, right? And so this is ultimately a Western order created in the aftermath of the Second World War, where those who get to dominate it are the ones who, who won the Second World War, as it were. Yeah. They were the victorious powers. And these countries, China and India, feel that, you know, as rising powers whose economies are now essentially have exceeded the size of many of those who get to still sit on top of the international orders, say Britain and France, for example. Yeah. Uh, why should they be taking orders from, from these countries? Why should these countries be permanent members or, you know, get privileges because they're allied with the United States and so on? So, so in some sense... Uh, you know, they also see this as a fundamentally European conflict. It's like, you, it's your problem, you solve it, right? Don't yeah. drag us into this. We already are paying significant costs in terms of higher energy prices, food prices, commodities. Uh, they are trying in some ways to minimize the economic fallout of the war. They're less concerned about the damage to the international order, which to me, frankly, is quite short-sighted. Uh, I think that they should worry about uh, uh, you know, territorial aggression by a major power in, in, in Eurasia, as it were, right? This is ultimately what we're talking about. Um, hmm. sets a very bad example. It damages a lot of international institutions and the things that China and India have relied on. So again, from a material standpoint, it really doesn't make that much sense. Uh, but, you know, when you think about it as a lack of recognition and inclusion, you can start to understand why they do this. Not, that's not to say it's justified, uh, but I think the long-term if these countries are to show international leadership, if they do want to actually become leaders in the international order, it would really be in their interest, both from material and the status point of view, to take charge and, and bring Putin to the negotiating table and say, we can we can forge a consensus the way the West cannot, right? Because mm -hmm. we have a special access to Putin. We can solve this conflict, but they're not doing that. No, and, and 
I was I was I'm glad you raised it because it's I wanted to ask and and you may have introduced it you may have answered it answered the question but how do we explain then China who is still hugely benefiting from the international uh order um is what would be their material interest in supporting Russia uh forming this alliance of best friends forever kind of thing um where you have russia which is kind of an arsonist to the whole international system so is is it just is that a strategic play how how would you how would you use your theory to explain kind of china's embracing of this alliance with russia even when russia is trying very hard well violating so many of the fundamental tenets of the international order yeah, no, I think it's 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 an interesting one. So I think there's definitely short-term strategic interest here, which is, you know, you're getting a lot of things uh, on the cheap, right? I mean, uh, India and China are both buying uh, Russian energy at this point at, at, you know, very, very attractive prices. Um, yes. But, uh, and, you know, there's also the question of India's def defense relationship with uh, with Russia. But as for China itself, um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to see how far they have gone to publicly support Russia in this in this situation, to talk about the no limits partnership and so on, and I think one can trace that back to this 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 rhetoric and ideology around what India, China, and Russia together have called the need for a more multipolar world order. Right? If you look mm. back, sort of post Cold War, they've had a series of summits and their statements and all of that. You can see the language that comes out there. The multipolar world order suggests to them, or suggest, should suggest to us, based on what they think uh, or their leaders think. That they essentially prefer an international order, i.e., the institutions that we use to govern cooperation and conflict between countries, to not have any sort of centers of power that are too concentrated, right? That yeah. not too much authority should be concentrated in the West. It should be more distributed. This is separate from questions of military power, right? This sure. is separate from economic weight. But there is a sense in which that that institutional, you might even think about it as like if there were a constitution for the world, they would these countries would want that constitution to distribute power more equally between. Uh, the the major powers that exist, right? And so I think the solidarity mm. behind Russia is in some sense a manifestation of that. We are non-Western countries. We seek a multipolar world order. We will manage this ourselves through our relations with Russia. We are not going to sort of go the Western way with sanctions and diplomatic isolation. Well, and that raises the question of, you know, so as you said, the, there's the demands for this multipolar world. So why why wouldn't the kind of great powers, existing great powers, recognize this shift in power, recognize the rising ascending powers, know that if they, again, if it's in their material interest to to, to minimize conflict, uh, why not bring them in? And 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 I, and and I don't mean to be like a broken rhetoric record, keeping going back to domestic politics, but I wonder if you see there's a kind of lag between how the internal polity within the great powers of the past or of non-ascending powers that that their that their view the internal that their citizens view of their own status as the rulers as the leaders and what would be required in order to create this multipolar world so uh thinking about kind of the US politics uh, as an example I can't imagine a U.S. president ever kind of rejecting U.S. exceptionalism and U.S. as the leader of the free world and saying, well, you know what, everybody, we aren't really the leader anymore. There's lots of different leaders. And so we have to stop acting like we're running the show. And so what we need to do is recognize that the world needs a lot of leaders and we're going to step back. And this would be like political death, right? So it's this lag between the reality and the domestic politics that create the break on the obvious solutions of maybe offering explicit status, enhancing acts for the ascending powers. Does it, is, would you would you agree with that, or is that is that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if your goal is to make sure that the the international order that you've built is durable, you want to be able to make sure that those with the potential to wreck it. Uh, are given at least some concessions to, to keep them from sort of getting too dissatisfied with the international order, right? But uh, I think the break, as you say, really lies in the domestic realm to some extent. Uh, and this is something that 
you know, the book doesn't talk about the power, the, the sort of great powers and what they're thinking or what their politics are, but really it, it almost suggests a natural second book project, which is about, you know, why don't great powers give rising powers <laughs> the status that they seek, right? And and really, the I mean, it's a great question. And I think there are both international level breaks, but also domestic level breaks. If you think about domestic, you know, small concessions, like, for example, not opposing the AIIB, right? China said, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank because it feels frustrated that it doesn't get enough recognition. The IMF, its voting rights are stuck, even though its economy is growing. So it sets up a different institution where it can be, you know, top dog, right? Um, the U.S. then starts to lean on its allies to stop joining, stop them from joining the AIIB. You don't have to do that. That's actually a fairly small thing to to do to grant China some amount of recognition, right? But at this point, you know, there's such a domestic consensus. Of course, this happened back in 2014, but it was already evolving at that point. It was very difficult uh, to, to make concessions in, of this of this nature to, to China, which is seen as a, a challenger to the United States, a pure competitor, whatever language you see in, in the annual statements that come out of the United States. Um, and there will be members of Congress, there will be others. Even now, there's there are major voices in the United States saying, why are we spending so much time focusing on Ukraine and Europe? We should be really focusing on the big threat, which is China, right? Yeah. Um, so you're right. I mean, our domestic politics are a break. But there's the international part of it, which is you also stand to lose your own prestige and status if you start to share it too much, right? Status is one of those things which if, if everyone has it, no one has it, right? It doesn't have value. It's a scarce commodity, scarce good. We're elite because there are, you know, there are a few of us great powers. So if we start admitting everyone into the club, um, it stops being that elite. And so there is a structural problem here, which prevents this from going forward as well. What's the old Groucho Marx line? I would never want to be a member of a club that would accept me as a member or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except in this case, it's probably the other way around. Is they wouldn't want to be a club member of a club that wouldn't accept them. Right. Yeah. It's a great idea for a next new book. I'll look forward to that book coming out. We can have another conversation. But let's talk about it within your book, because I think you have a really nice, yeah. simple model to make some predictions about what's going to happen. So you use kind of a uh, a two-by-two two table. You have institutional openness. Is is there openness to new, new ascending powers joining the system? And you have the idea of procedural fairness. Is there perceived fairness or not perceived fairness? And can you tell us how the the interaction between the between these two things kind of makes some predictions about what will happen uh, uh, in different combinations of these things? Because it's kind of the sure. core so, of the book, yeah. Yes, yeah, no, it's just it is the the main framework that the book operates on, and so these two ideas: that one is institutional openness, which is essentially. Um, are there pathways for new powers that enter the international order or that are rising up and becoming important to join the leadership ranks of the order? Right? Can you be part of the inner circle, as it were? And and fairness, institutional or procedural fairness, as I call it, is does does the do the orders institutions operate in ways that are unbiased, consultative, and not singling out any any rising power for you know uh, uh, sort of bad treatment, let's say, right? So both these things in some ways, fairness also signals your standing in a community that you're valued and respected. If the rules that apply to the big guys apply to you as well, that's a feeling of, you know, equality yeah. and symbolic equality and so on, right? And so so both these factors ultimately are tied to status, which is in a sense a fundamental motive of, of, of states and of humans and social groups and so on. And so, you know, the, the question is, what do you do when you're faced with different combinations of these two things, openness and fairness? And so, when you know, I argue that the best state to be in, in in an international order for rising power is to face an order that is both open and fair, because then you can achieve your your uh, your status ambitions at relatively low cost. Or sometimes there are costs, of course, involved, but you you in a sense follow the rules and you automatically just keep rising because the system allows it. Right? It it makes it allows social mobility. This is ultimately what it is. Yeah. Right. Okay. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have you have, in a sense, situations of the opposite sense, which is when a system uh, the order is both unfair, it is biased, uh, it only favors the great powers, uh, and it is closed off to new people joining it or new countries joining it. Right. In that case, the only way you can assert your equality relative to the great powers is to actually push back, to delegitimize, to protest, to maybe set up other institutions like China has done. In fact. Um, to to challenge it, right? To try and break stuff, um, and that gets you a certain social distinctiveness and status in the system as 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 an important country. Um, and then in between, there are these combinations where things are like partially open or partially fair. Um, uh, and in those situations, I argue that 
you're likely to see efforts at institutional reform that, that essentially rising powers will not just straightforwardly cooperate or straightforwardly challenge these institutions, uh, these parts of the international order. They will actually try to change the rules to give themselves more recognition because there is a chance when it's partial, there is a chance that you can actually secure the ideal outcome. So they will continue trying to do that. But of course, there comes a time when if the order doesn't give in, if the rules don't change, if the great powers are pretty intransigent, the rising power starts to lose patience. And then you might see more challenge type behavior. So where are we now? Are we in a, cl a closed, unfair system or open, fair? What, 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 what I like about the book, what I love about the framework is it, it gives agency, right? It doesn't say that ascending powers will lead to this dangerous time of almost inevitable conflict. So they're saying whether there's conflict or not, they, these two things we have control over in some ways. There is, there is some control over whether you make a system open or closed and whether you address legitimate concerns about fairness of the system or not. So I'm just kind of wondering if you look out at the world right now and you say, okay, are we are we in a system where it's closed and unfair and so we're going to see conflict, let's say, with China? Or is it? Uh, do you see signs that give you hope that maybe we're going to not get to that, that conflict phase? Yeah, so in a sort of macro sense, um, it's, it's hard to come to one judgment about whether there's a singular way in which China uh, opposes or supports Supports the international order, right? Or even India for that matter. Um, I think one has to think about, especially in today's international order, which is so complex and disaggregated in, in so many different issue areas. There's trade, there's nuclear proliferation, there's environment, there's all kinds of issues, human rights that the international order deals with. And so I think it's more a question of which areas accord these countries the status that they that they seek. So let's talk about China, right? Uh, I have a chapter in the book that looks at China in the post-Cold War world, and I essentially find that institutions in the current international order that are open and fair from China's perspective are the ones where China cooperates, right? So I'm thinking UN Security Council, China is a permanent, permanent veto-wielding member. It generally cooperates in that institution. The WTO, which is a fairly open architecture, it even has a dispute resolution mechanism uh, that China can use to attain you know, uh, uh, fair outcomes, uh, that China generally cooperates, broadly speaking. Uh, the nuclear order actually, as the CTBT example shows, and the NPT, China cooperates, right? G20. These forums where China gets recognition, China is much more cooperative. But at the other end, if you think of you know, the human rights regime, where China is singled out as a bad actor often, uh, and, and there's never going to be room at the top of that leadership for China because it is a non-democracy in a democratic, in an order run by democracies, right? Which is yeah. you know, the United States, really. Um, that's a, an example where China is really challenging and pushing back against the human rights regime, uh, internationally speaking. You know, they, for example, they'll, uh, they pushed for more universal bases in which, you know, the, the UN Human Rights Council does its work. So they want universal periodic review. They don't want just certain countries being picked on. Uh, they also have now pu started publishing, uh, for a while now, they've been publishing their own annual human rights assessments of the United States, right? Looking yeah. at BLM and looking at other issues saying, oh, well, sure. you think that we are violating, you know, what about you? So, so you know, and then in between you have, you know, the financial institutions, you have climate change. There are lots of other areas where China is trying to reform without breaking or just following, right? So, so we're in a world that is very complex. I think sure. different institutions fall into different buckets. Uh, but broadly speaking, what is the implication of that, right? The implication is if you're the U.S. and you want to make sure that this order survives, you seek cooperation from China. You make them go the extra mile in the institutions that they already get recognition. So if they're already recognized in the U.N., you ask more of them in terms of cooperation. But the flip side of the coin is you do have to make adjustments to accommodate their status concerns in the other areas where they're still seeking reform, right? It's a give and take. You can't just shut down what China wants. And this is where we go back to domestic politics. It's hard to do that, but that's a prescription, right? Yeah. Make them yeah. do more work in the places where they are recognized and give them more recognition in the places where they're not. Yeah, I mean, that that seems right to me. It seems like the logical way. Again, whether it's possible or not politically is, is the interesting part. I think it's interesting what you said about, uh, for example, in the nuclear sphere, um, where China is a, an active and responsible member, I would say, in that case. And you see that also if we go back to its relationship with Russia. I think that there's no doubt that if Russia were to violate the norms of that international order, that that, that their alliance with China would would fall. It would China would would not would not I I think again, who who knows? 
My guess is that if Russia were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, China would abandon that alliance. Is that right, do you think? Yeah. An interesting example um, uh, or an analogy can be drawn to the North Korean case, right? I think China has been actively involved in the six-party talks, even though North Korea is technically, or not technically, but at least substantively a Chinese ally, right? It depends on China for a lot of things. But China is not comfortable with a nuclear North Korea just as much as the United States or Japan are not, right? But it won't go all the way, but it'll come to the negotiating table to try and convince the North Koreans to denuclearize, right? So I think you'd expect a similar kind of responsible action from China, which is, if and a world in which Russia uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine would maybe a world in which there are many other things kicking off already, right, between China and the United States. So then all bets are off the table. If we're already in a scenario where war is more likely, we don't know. But if it was unprovoked in the sense that, you know, uh, out of the blue, because Russia is losing a conventional war, it starts a, a nuclear, it, it drops a nuclear bomb in Ukraine. I think that would certainly affect China's calculations with regard to Russia and make it far less willing to support Russia. And I'm guessing, obviously, no one is privy to these conversations, but I think that's one of the main concerns that both India and China have with regard to Russia, which is that yeah. this is the the red line. They just cannot allow that to happen. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. Listen, one one last thing, and, and then we'll start to wrap it up. I, I, I wonder if... Um... It, it, it has to do with an obstacle, a potential obstacle for major powers, grand Eden, rising Eden powers, the status and equal treatment. And it's it's something we haven't talked about yet. So if we go back to one of the original theories is that the great powers invest a lot in these in maintaining the international order. This is this has costs for them. Um, but everybody benefits, even if it's if the if the rules are rigged against the ascending powers, they benefit from them. And one of the reasons is they can kind of free ride on the on the expense of maintaining that inter- international order that is incurred on the leaders of that international order. And then what happens is is because they aren't paying for it, they aren't putting in the resources to maintain it. When they ask for equal status, you get a kickback from the powers that are actually investing in it, saying, "Well, look, you want to you want to be a, a member. You really want to be a member of the club. Here's the dues, and when the dues come come up, you aren't willing to pay for them. And if you aren't pay, willing to pay for them, then then uh, we aren't going to do it. And if you force us, then we'll just re- we'll just remove ourselves. We'll quit the club. So you get this you get this kind of idea of the U.S. as the as the great hyperpower." Under Trump, with the threat of look, we're just going to withdraw. We're we're being taken advantage of. We're we're paying for all of this stuff all over the world. We aren't getting a good deal, and we're going to withdraw from it. And I was wondering if if this i this this problem, the logic of the free rider, maybe in this sense, is is also at play here. That that in some ways, for the existing powers, it becomes difficult because. They feel like, look, you go along with it. We're willing to make the make the cost. You go against it, then screw you. We're going to leave. Something like this. I mean, that's a very crude way of saying it. But does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, elsewhere, I've sort of written about this as the sort of chicken and egg problem of international order, right? That which is, in a sense, first of all, you know, leadership of the order is costly. You have to use resources to induce or to coerce other other people to get behind protecting the order make it work and so on you know if you think about multilateral military interventions or if you think about you know trade for example you have to you have to provide disproportionate market access to your own markets to make the free trade system work if you're the united states right and rising powers are benefiting from all of that uh, and they're but, but you know they're not paying as you say the costs of maintaining the system and when it comes to that point where they seek membership they seek elite status uh, and, the, and the great powers say you know we will give you that if you act responsibly. You, it creates a conundrum where essentially rising powers don't want to pay those costs without first getting the recognition. Right. But the great powers don't want to give them that recognition without first seeing the, the cost of commitment. Right. Yeah. And so, so it becomes a, a challenge. And so you you have this impasse where nothing nothing moves forward. And I think that's where we are today to some extent. Um, now it's very interesting that you sort of say what what happens then when the when the great power gets fed up, right? Um, and, and I think the Trump moment of exiting or moving away from the international order may not be so much about this particular thing that these rising powers are not paying costs. I think it was more to do with the fact that these rising powers were benefiting more than the U.S., which I guess in a roundabout way is saying the same thing, right? Which is yeah. that, look, we put all this work into building this order. 
Um, and now these guys just boomed after joining the WTO and they are of, of all these unfair trading practices, why should we bear the cost of it? And this is entirely, this is also true of India, right? Like, you know, the mm. US has removed India from uh, preferential trading uh, agreements. You know, it, it's all the sort of holidays that India had for various products. Uh, they've put tariffs on, 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 you know, aluminum from India and all of this stuff, right? So, so in a sense, um, there is, uh, there is a sense in which the U.S. sought to penalize the trade war was in a way penalizing these countries that have excessively benefited without paying their dues. So I think perhaps you know, in the end, it's probably motivated by the same thing now that I think about it. But, you know, so it, what do you do there? I mean, it's it's really difficult. I think it's not an inevitable reaction. It's not inevitable that the great power will say, I'm done. You know, I'm moving on. Screw you. Right. It's also possible that you double down and you try to sort of, you know, in a sense, make sure that you get your fair share in the order. So you compete, right? Which is kind of what the Biden administration is doing now, right? It's yeah. it's, it's reverse the exit and it's saying, no, we will compete with China because we built this order that, that has value and our allies and friends and partners clearly recognize it because when you look around the Indo-Pacific, you see everyone talking about a rules-based order. Even Korea now has its own official position on this, right? So clearly countries value it. So why would you walk away from something and leave it to these other countries that never even put in the cost to build it, right? So I think there is another way of thinking about it. And that's what the Biden administration is doing, which is to say, we're not going to just throw the baby out of the bathwater. We're actually going to compete with China to make it an order that works for us. And that's what decoupling and, you know, like uh, supply chain resilience and the Indo-Pacific and the Quad and all that is about, I think. Yeah. And well, but they'll also start to violate some of the rules that they put in place that they see as most disadvantageous to them now. So the U.S. under Biden now has essentially industrial policy in some areas that that would are against, if not the letter, but it's certainly the spirit of, of free trade with the WTO, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they're saying, okay, we we might we're not going to exit from the whole thing. This is reckless and and uh, counterproductive. But there's parts that are now unfair to us. You don't, you aren't going to play by the rules that that are in the system. We will not play by those rules. But we don't have to burn down the whole house. Is that what you mean by this competitive response? Yeah. Look, I mean, there are no clean hands in this game, right? Norms and rules in the international order are are under are underlaid by hypocrisy, right? Like those who make those. Um, rules are often the ones breaking them or not following them, right? The U.S. Yeah. never signed the Kyoto Protocol, uh, you know, the, the Trump left the Paris Agreement, you know, there's so many things, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, which the U.S. wants China to follow, the U.S. has never signed it, right? Yeah. So yeah. in a sense, the, the, where there are rules, there are obviously, hypoc there is hypocrisy built into it. So in a sense, uh, whoever controls the system, though, has the greatest freedom to be hypocritical, right, in some sense. And so what the rising powers resent, really, China and India resent, is that they don't get to be hypocritical and, and escape censure or, or pay costs, uh, pay fewer costs than, than, say, the U.S. does, right? And so the U.S. is saying, yes, I mean, under Biden, they're saying, yes, that's right, we are going to be hypocritical and we are going to protect our interests and we will compete with you because that is the world we live in now, right? And, yeah. and so it is still ultimately linked to the shift in the global distribution of power away from the West towards Asia. Uh, and, and so when you have more of these actors that are trying to claim their share of recognition and, and material benefits, you have to compete. It's no longer a... a you know what? What was once called a unipolar world, where the U.S. is free to do what it wants, and you know that was the 1990s. So it's not that anymore. I love this expression that what what we're really fighting for is the right to be hypocritical. So <laughs> it's it's yeah. a it's a great way of thinking about it. Look, I want to be respectful of your time. I've I've really loved our conversation. Thank you, Ron. But I, the last question for you: uh, we we do this at the end of each of the discussions. Um, what are three books, articles, films, et cetera, which have you've consumed in the last year of some sort, you know, listened to or watched that you can recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be nonfiction. It could be fiction, uh, serious, not serious, whatever. What are, what are three things that you'd pass on as recommendations? Well, I'm going to go down the non-serious uh, in that the non-academic route. I think there are plenty of serious things in the non-academic world, which one should read. And they don't they don't have to be non-fiction either. I'm going to think about fiction in particular. And I, a, a book that I read recently, actually, over the winter break in December, really stayed with me. It's called The Trees by Percival Everett. He was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year. Uh, it's a murder mystery set in rural Mississippi, uh, but it's also a historical and contemporary commentary on 
racism and police brutality in the U.S. But it, you know, and it's, it's it's sort of steeped in this dark humor. He writes in this really, you know, uh, dark humor sort of way, and I, it's really a good read. Um, and it's powerful for that. Yeah, and then and then the second thing I would I would probably recommend is uh, I'm I'm a, an amateur sci-fi buff, so I've been what I watched the final season of The Expanse uh, last year, which is uh, again based on a set of books, but the the TV show does a tremendous job uh, of being faithful in a way to the books, but also showing a realistic picture of what a future uh, you know intergalactic life might look like or not even intergalactic, actually, life in the solar system, right? different planets colonized and so on. It's really incredible sci-fi, but it's also interwoven with all these international relations themes, right? This empire, colonialism, deterrence, the role of new technology, terrorism. So I, I really, I mean, it, it, I love watching that show, right? And so I, I, you know, I finished it last year. Uh, the series ended, and so I, I, yeah, I think it ended. I think we have similar tastes because I too really would recommend this, but it, it is essentially... Um, it it is it, it's a great show for um, international relations and politics nerds, <laughs> you know, because it I, and I I count myself within that camp. By the way, it's not a it's not a offense, but um, it's it's all about politics. The whole thing it's just mm -hmm. international politics set in in a, in a different setting. So yeah, great great yeah. great great show as well. So that's two. So the trees, the expanse. What's the third? Yeah. One? And the third is like, it's not really a, a piece of work per se, it's an artist. I, I listened to her, for, I watched her for the first time live, Lucy Dacus. She's a, she's a, a she's, you know, musician. And I was at, uh, I, so I moved to London in August last year from Singapore after six years of living in Singapore. And one of the first things I did was attend a, a, an outdoor music festival because that's what you do in London. And uh, of course, yeah. it was all points east. And she, you know, I went to see actually my favorite band, which is a national, but I went for the full day and I saw her in the afternoon. It was like a revelation. I'd never heard her before. Um, and it's like lyrically very rich and personal intimate music and she's very very talented so uh, it was a big discovery for me I listened to her a lot she was my most my second most listened to artist on Spotify after the national so yeah. okay great and and you moved to uh, London to join the LSE and we're very happy to have you thank you Ron, it's it's been it's been a great pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed reading the book I recommend it to everybody and uh, I just think uh, it's such an interesting intersection between kind of theories about identity, uh, social groups, in groups, out groups, status, and then tying that together within the international relations theory, and then coming up with this kind of understanding of the international order that that has the hope, as we said, of agency that we can do something to influence. It's not kind of this inevitable conflict that comes from ascending powers. And that and that give and that I hope that gives us some hope that we we can we can do things to influence outcomes. It's not just kind of a that conflict is inevitable as as a power rises. So thank you for giving us that hope. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you liked the book. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. 